everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you are back for another exciting, loud, headbanging episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. And uh, before we get on to our uh, very exciting subject matter this week, I want to introduce my podcast co-host, the filmmaker, the writer, a creative collaborator, a dear, dear friend, a humanitarian known around the world, and Oprah's pick for best screenwriter of Hallmark movies. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Michael Verratti! Wow, that that was a step up right there. <laughs> humanitarian and an Oprah chosen screenwriter. These are things even I didn't know. Thank you, Peaches. Well, I was just testing you because before when I called you a popper's pig, you were like, that's a lie. But when I called you a humanitarian known around the world who's been acknowledged by Oprah, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Welcome to America, where we uh, where we like to prop up the truths that suit us. <laughs> That's very true. That's very, very true. I'm going to give it more thought, you know, for next week. I think one of the things I'm enjoying is, is the challenge of introducing you. Truth or not, everyone knows. Actually, one of our guests today, one of our special guests today, would be the first to tell you that I'm a liar. I would argue with her that I don't actually lie so much as I do exaggerate. And I do, in my storytelling, try to exaggerate exaggerate what would make for the best story possible you know i'm a storyteller really the hallmark of a true showman and you know you are of a long lineage of of great uh bally show show person show show persons yes absolutely a show queen if you will (laughs) (laughs) i'm a show ghoul you guys i'm a show ghoul i'm one of the show ghouls there it is the audience is like get to it Gays. Okay, so Michael, what are we celebrating this week on Midnight Mass? Well, certainly, Peaches, we do not want to be sedated for this week's episode because we're going to tear up our textbooks and dance in the hallways because we are celebrating rock and roll high school. You know, what's interesting about this particular episode, this film directed by Alan Arkish, produced by Roger Corman, starring PJ Souls, Day Young, and of course, the Ramones, is all about this kind of uh, counterculture movie uh, that is centered on a girl who's obsessed with the Ramones and how she sort of leads a revolution at her high school. And yes, we're celebrating that movie today because uh, it's the title of the episode and I just gave a big introduction to it. But I would also venture to say, as we talk to our guests, this episode is sort of a backdoor idol worship the Ramones episode too. If the Ramones had not been the stars of this movie, we may not be talking about it today. And so the bigger conversation here is kind of, I think, about how music and music fandom has overlap with movies and movie fandom and how the two can intersect in a situation like this. But I love when we discuss with one of our guests, Michelle, about that sort of imprint that you start making as a kid where you start to realize that the pop culture you are a fan of is actually part of the way that you're expressing your identity, right? Like we as young people start to realize like, oh, I have an identity. I can say something about what I am, who I like. And so certain being a fan of rock and roll high school means that you're a fan of the Ramones and therefore you um, you stand for certain virtues of punk culture and you know counterculture and being archaic and you know all of that stuff not archaic not archaic anarchist is the word I was was looking for and you were going to just let me say that and not correct me 
please feel free to correct me when I sound dumb. Well, I don't have all day. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be one of those kind of episodes. No, but what what I was going to say, Peaches, is that, you know, truly over the trajectory of Midnight Mass, the idea of imprinting on pop culture is really, you know, what we center our discussions about every week. And through the lens of the show, it's frequently cult figures, cult movies. Um, but of course, when you're young and you're discovering yourself and your identity, music's so important. And so when you have these pop culture vehicles that sort of intersect the two, and we, we kind of talked about this when we talked about the Winnipeg phenomenon with uh, Phantom of the Paradise and how this group of teens and kids got into the music. They fell in love with Paul Williams and thus fell in love with this movie. And it kind of created this like mini rock revolution up there centered around this film. And I think there's something particular about that intersection that hits a sweet spot, especially if it's a band that you like. And of course, we've seen manufactured versions of this not work, and we've seen versions of it really work. I mean, Mm -hmm. the intersection of rock and roll and cinema is not new. The Beatles did it in A Hard Day's Night. We, of course, love Purple Rain and Prince. We've seen so Mm -hmm. many bands like uh, Ken Russell made The Who's Tommy with, you know, The Who. Pink Floyd made The Wall. Uh, And I think for each of those subcultures and devotees to each of those bands or rock idols, those movies are a big deal. So of course the Ramones and rock and roll high school is, is a singular moment here. I think one thing I like about talking about these movies and, and, and I guess what we would call rock and roll movies are sort of band vehicles in a way is that Something like Phantom of the Paradise, I would say, is more of a proper rock musical. There's songs that were written specifically for that movie. It was a whole story where the music was integrated. Obviously, Little Shop of Horrors, which is another rock musical we've covered. Those are maybe more traditional rock musicals. I'm I'm trying to think of more. Well, Jesus Christ Superstar or Hedwig and the Angry Inch, where the music is part of the storytelling. This is one of those movies, like you mentioned, that, that falls into this other category where you've got a phenomenal band that has its own identity, that has its own content, and then you're going to create a world on screen in which this music can sort of be presented. And you're right. going to create a movie around that. And um, the other examples that you you made, especially in the case of Purple Rain, there could be a lot more acting. There could be a lot more storytelling. Where, whereas what we talk about in Rock and Roll High School is, you know, the Ramones apparently weren't very good actors. And uh, th- this film had to be kind of designed around their lack of acting ability. And yet somehow that still works because they are the Ramones and the music and the style the attitude kind of speaks for itself and and is very quite effective on screen. I think that what we talk about with our guests later is part of the impact of this movie is that it's about a band, but it's not necessarily centered on the band. It's centered on that really precious moment of adolescence and fandom where you do define your identity by a group like this. And so through the lens of Riff Randall, who of course is a um, very stylized version of what I think we all wish we were as a teenager, because I don't think I knew anyone who was like her at school, but boy, do I wish I did. We get to kind of project upon her that idea of if I could embody the tenets of the bands that I love, like, you know, the the punk rock ethos of the Ramones, the, you know, the sonic power of the who or whatever, how would it change my life without the, you know, 
the establishment telling me not to do that. And that's kind of what this movie's about. Talking to both our guests, who you and I will introduce, but we can mention right now, are my oldest, dearest ghoul friend, Hecklina, who really, really loves Rock and Roll High School because of the Ramones, as well as Michelle T, the fantastic author, who's a dear friend of yours and a friend of mine. It was really lovely to sort of you know, uh, tap into how a, a crazy, absurd, weird movie like this can make such an imprint and, you know, be something that people carry with them for their entire life. And I, in fact, think that the conversations we have with both of them are so significant to shaping why a movie like this has an impact that I, I kind of don't want to wait anymore. I, I agree. So let's uh, let's get into it. We're about to talk to drag impresario and legend herself, Hecklina, right now. All right, everybody, we are now being joined by our very special guest who just so happens to be one of my bestest ghoul friends in the world. We go way, way back. That's right, we met in 1996. And one of the things that we, I think, have in common is, is, is a shared love for a lot of the same pop culture, music and movies. Um, and um, it only made sense to bring her on for this special episode because she's the biggest fan of this movie that I know, um, and I can't wait to uh, ask her why. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, actually, no, actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, without further ado, let's hear it for Hecklina. Hi, Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Peaches. Hi, Michael. Hi, Hecklina. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you. Yes, and uh, as you can imagine, you know, there, there's so many movies that I could have you on for because, you know, you love a lot of the cult movies that we're doing. Right, well, we, we were talking originally about Liquid Sky, <clears throat> which, mm -hmm. <clears throat> if we're going to talk about any cult movies, that was the one that I think had the biggest influence on me or effect on me when I saw it. Um, but Rock and Roll High School is also one that I, that I go back to kind of, you know how you watch movies... Uh, and, and when you watch them, they take you back to a certain time in your life. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely one of them. Um, and I, I love the silliness of it. Well, we can certainly have you back on um, when we tackle Liquid Sky. Uh, so so we'll, we'll put a pin in that. Um, but why don't you go ahead and describe, uh, because I do think there's a difference between all three of us as far as um, our connection with this movie. I think, you know, for Michael and my, especially I'll speak for myself, I understand its place in the cult movie canon. I certainly um, uh, admire a lot of aspects of it, um, but I don't have the nostalgic connection to it because I saw it later in life as an adult who was told it was a cult movie. And, you know, um, it, it had a different impact on me. I, I think maybe I'm not as connected to it as you are. So can you describe sort of how you um, built that sort of relationship? Like what was the time in your life? Well, uh, you know, obviously we love, we all love different movies for different reasons. Uh, some movies make us think, some movies make us laugh. Some movies are just, you know, visual crack. You know what I mean? That we like to watch. 
But this movie uh, was important to me because I felt very misunderstood as a teenager. And um, I was very into punk rock. And I was very into the Ramones. And I remember I went to go live for a brief period of time in the Midwest with my father. It was in a small town in Minnesota. Everybody was very backwards thinking. And and the radio station only would play, you know, <laughs> Led Zeppelin, Ario Speedwagon or whatever. And I think even at an early age, I realized uh, how important punk rock was, you know, as an attitude. But... I just love the Ramones, and and I love this movie. I uh, I didn't really care about about the subplot about the romance between those two teenagers. I loved Riff Randall. Uh, I could really relate to her. I loved that the Ramones in this movie are big a superstar group when 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 in fact they never were. You know, they they never played arenas or anything. And I remember even when I was with other punk rockers, they were like the Ramones, and they and it always seemed so antiquated to them. But I. Uh, <clears throat> I remember a story about Chrissy Hind when she first moved to London and all she brought with her was her copy of Iggy and the Stooges, Raw Power. And that's how I felt about the Ramones. Whenever I traveled, I didn't have any money on me. I was just like, I was broke, but I always had my Ramones cassettes and my Ramones t-shirt. And uh, I, I just felt like they were true rock and roll. You know what I mean? Um, boiled down to its real essence, you know, just guitars and 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 two and a half minute songs. And I don't know, I just loved everything about the movie. And I would play it, you know, you play things when you're that age to annoy your parents and um, and the people around you. And, and people already thought I was strange and I would just play this music in this small town in Minnesota and everybody, and, and you love it when people are like, that. What what is that shit you're listening to? <laughs> you know? and, I, and I would get that whenever I would play that or the Violent Femmes or whatever. But um, yeah, it's just, it's it's a silly movie. I, I also love you know uh, Mary Warnoff and and all that stuff. Um, but mostly, I just love the scenes. I remember how thrilled I was the scenes when the Ramones did come on. I love the the love song uh, in Riff Randall's bedroom when she's smoking a joint and she's fantasizing about the Ramones, and all of a sudden they appear in her bedroom. And uh, Dee Dee Ramone is in the shower, I think, playing the guitar. Or I love that <laughs> reveal. Yes. <laughs> It's yeah, definitely a, like a it's a it's a teenage uh, fantasy like that whole sequence like who wouldn't want to fantasize about being you know I mean PJ Souls is basically naked right like at one point yeah. like in the shower yeah, like it's kind of yeah. shocking for by today's standards but you know it's her fantasy and like you totally as a kid especially uh, who's a fan of anything understand that fantasy of like waking up and having the, the those uh, folks in your home it's a fabulous like weird sequence. I, I love the fact that Joey Ramone is so ugly. You know what I mean? He's, he, <laughs> he, he, he looks like a, he looks like an insect man or something, you know, and, and, and he's misshapen. He's like weirdly shapen. And, uh, and Riff Randall is so hot for him. You know what I mean? I, I just love that mm -hmm. too. You talk about this idea of, of the punk rock DNA that the Ramones bring to it. And, you know, Peaches, you talk about that shocking moment, which of course we want from punk art because punk art is supposed to press against the mainstream. We're supposed to have that subversive element. And when I think about this movie, uh, you, you talk about our connection to it. I found this movie because of Class of Newcomb High, because that was a very punk rock, wild high school movie. And someone was like, well, if you like that, you should go watch Rock and Roll High School, because basically that was the blueprint 
And it's got the Ramones, and I loved the Ramones, and so I was like, how had I never heard of this? One of my favorite things about doing a deep dive on this movie, because the Ramones at the time especially did sort of represent the anti-label band, the anti-establishment, is how unlikely it is that they were in this movie at all. I mean, this movie opens with a Paul McCartney song, and then we get the Ramones. And I went back and kind of did a little history, and originally the plan was to call this movie Disco High and have a disco artist. And then there was like this list of artists, like at, at one point they wanted Todd Rundgren to do it, and then Cheap Trick, and eventually they came to the Ramones. It goes without saying, but I kind of want to hear you talk about it, Heckley, and I like, this movie wouldn't have been this movie without them. No, uh, I mean, Todd Rundgren, I mean, that's so, so weird. I mean, Todd Rundgren was a really uh, a big figure, but not... Uh, a punk legend. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad they 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 settled on the Ramones. It, it seemed like people were always settling on the Ramones. The Ramones never got their due while they were really together as a group. You know, they were always kind of bottom of the bill and stuff like that. And it, I, I feel strangely vindicated because when I was a teenager, I was like the Ramones, David Bowie. You know, like, I, I somehow I realized what was, like, Iggy Pop, you know, like, and everybody was, like, Duran Duran, or I don't know, whatever. <laughs> I, I feel vindicated, like, 40 years later that everyone realizes the Ramones were one of the most influential bands ever. You know, they kind of, rock and roll was pretty much dead in the 70s. It was, like, 20-minute drum solos and, you know, boring uh, ELO, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer bullshit, you know, and the Ramones came along really before the Sex Pistols even, it kind of saved rock and roll. And, and yes, that is the DNA of rock and roll, is just silly songs about sniffing glue <laughs> and being in high school. I don't know, I, I just related to it. And it would have been, it would not have been, it would have been, uh, it would have been some Linda Blair, you know, disco skate movie. <laughs> you remember <laughs> when she had all those oh, roller, yeah. di- roller, roller disco, boogie, roller, roller boogie. boogie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the, and the, I thought it was really cool about PJ Souls um, being Riff Randall because she was, you know, in so many cool movies. And it wasn't it wasn't until later when I was doing some research about this movie that um, she was really not into it. Like she was actually really terrified. A lot of those scenes when they were a lot of those scenes when they were doing the punk rock concerts and they put her in there. Those were real Ramones concerts, and she was actually really terrified and um, you know hated filming this movie. Oh, that's so funny because I actually think like, you know, um, we have to talk about PJ Souls a bit because as you bring up, um, arguably, especially for this time period, this is a woman who managed to be in maybe two of the best horror films, you know, ever made, literally ever made, right? So she, if you, if you don't know, PJ Souls is uh, in Carrie. Uh, and she plays uh, one of the friends of the popular girl. And, and similarly, she's in Halloween. In fact, her characters in both movies are kind of alike, you know. She definitely was a type, and very much of her era. And so Rock and Roll High School, where we get to see her take center stage, I think, for the first time. And um, it's interesting to hear you say that she didn't enjoy it because she's obviously an effective performer, you know, <laughs> because you believe her fandom in the film is ridiculous as it might be. And it is the best, okay, the, I think the best parts of the movie you, you, you've brought up, which are 
the Ramones, obviously. And and the Ramones kind of are the make it or break it part of the film. And then also her fandom of the Ramones and the scenes with her just being obsessed with the Ramones. I think as people who are obsessed with things, it's just fun to watch her character. And then of course, as far as the camp or the sort of cult aspect, you know, I think every scene Mary Warnoff is in, she just chews up the scenery. She, her face is so gorgeous. Her, her looks, her voice, you know, she just understands the world that she's in. And I think those are the best parts of the movie. And we, we should talk about PJ Souls. And then I think we should talk about parts of the movie that are just like, what? Like, what is <laughs> going, like, what's going on? Yeah. The, the Van Patten, what, wasn't it some Van Patten kid? I mean, th this is how little I remember about the other subplots is that there was some Brandon Riff Randalls who was dating somebody who was the son of Dick Van Patten or whatever. Am I right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So it's Day Young is attracted to the quarterback of the football team who he himself is attracted to Riff Randall. And uh, right. I was telling Peaches via text before we jumped on here that that subplot feels very of the time. Like, you know, it's very post-Animal House, very, like, parallel to Porky's, where the whole thing is just like, I just want to get laid. And, you know, they did that <laughs> a, a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're right. I, I think if anything feels dated or almost uh, not part of the movie, it's that stuff. Right. I mean, the most thrilling part for me was when Riff Randall was – arguing with Angel Dust. They, they were waiting in line for yes. the concert and they were arguing and all of a sudden the Ramones, they're like, the Ramones are coming. And then the Ramones are coming down <laughs> the street in that in that car, in the in the convertible, eating a chicken leg and you know doing that song. I, <laughs> I love that. I love that whole part, you know. That is the best. I think you're right. That is my favorite scene in the movie, having just rewatched <laughs> it. And I was saying to Michael, like, I saw this movie in, probably in my 20s, and I don't know that I've seen it since. And one of the reasons I watched it memorably was when we were programming Midnight Mass, and people kept asking for this film, naturally, probably you, Hecklina. And I watched it, and I didn't connect to it. And I think part of it was that I understood why people liked it, and certainly I screened movies that I did not connect with. There might have been problems with getting the rights. I don't remember. That was a, a real obstacle at the time. But that scene with Riff Randall um, camping out for the tickets, and then and the groupie coming up and her calling her a groupie. Oh, it's fabulous. Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously Rock and Roll High School is not a gay camp movie. Mm -mm. It's, it's, it's very much a, uh, I, I don't know what the equivalent would be. There, there are, I'm sure there are many cult movies that are straight, quote, straight, unquote, cult movies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think Rock and Roll High School is definitely one of them. I mean, the Ramones were never popular with Actually, you know, when I talked to actual old homosexuals that were around back in the 70s, uh, the gays were never into any rock Your and roll. Peers. They were, huh? No, I'm talking about old. Yeah, honey. I'm 80s. Honey, uh, please. Yeah, I'm 80s. You, you, I'm you 80s. can see the, the video. Honey, please. Honey, listen, please. Listen, <laughs> listen. Seriously. I'm talking about people who survived the 70s. Okay. They told me that the, the gays weren't even listening to glam or or punk or any they were just in the discos you know doing poppers studio 54 to Donna yeah. Summer. <laughs> yeah anyway so this is not it's not a gay like if you had screened this at midnight mass people would have been like probably been like there it would have been very straight which there was the, some of those there was yeah and michael and i did do an episode already um and i believe you went and watched the movie on another cult rock and roll movie of the era, uh, Phantom of the Paradise, which of course came out in the mid 70s. And, and I was thinking about 
cult rock and roll films are kind of their own genre of cult movies Absolutely. in a way. Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about it before we started, like, can we list a bunch of them? Like, I know, let's see, there's Phantom of the Paradise, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Probably Shock Treatment. Shock Treatment. I was thinking The Wall. Oh, The Who's Tommy. For sure. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. more recently, I would say um, probably uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Although obviously that's gayer. So is Rocky Horror, right? So yeah, yeah. it is a, an interesting genre of its own. And I think Rock and Roll High School in many ways is the most fun of all of them in some ways. You know, it does never takes itself seriously at all. Well, it's so interesting that Heclina brings up the fact that there's really not a, a queer element to Rock and Roll High School because I rewatched it in preparation for this. And my memory of it was that it had a lot more queer leaning camp than it actually does. And I don't know if it was just when I saw it, I had telegraphed this experience or maybe merely by the presence of Mary Warnov, I wanted it to be queer. And I think that's quite interesting because even Phantom of the Paradise has, has some queerness to it. It may not be well presented at times, but it's there. Whereas this almost eschews it. Right, yeah. Uh, it's actually trying to be a parody of those uh, 50s movies like Asphalt Jungle and stuff like that. I can't really think of other names of those 50s high school movies. Maybe the Elvis movies, you know. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that, sort of, uh, that sort of idea of like, okay, let's take a popular icon of the music industry and capitalize on a movie version of whatever, this content. And you're right, Hecklina, that's what makes this movie so special is that they're kind of the antithesis of the sort of artist that would get this kind of movie and I love the silliness I love that they're part of it their their live performances in the film are the definitely the most entertaining I also love you know like the random stuff of like clearly the art department you know went to town making signs where they all have the same sign and the other thing that I had forgotten about, which I just loved, was the moment they're doing the um, Goobble Gobble song and the, the person dressed as the pinhead comes out right. and is like dancing around the stage. It's like, that is so like exciting and lovely. And like, it makes me go like, fuck, I wish I could have seen the Ramones, you know, like, like it captures the magic of what it would be like to see them. Every time they're on screen, regardless of how unattractive or not Hollywood they would be. In fact, that's what makes it great, you know, is is just how unusual they are. The music is great and they're fabulous. And then, like I said, I think we should talk a little bit also about the other cult movie icon. In addition to PJ Souls, you've got Mary Warnoff and you've got Paul Bartel, who I'd forgotten right. was in this. And, you know, I did a Midnight Mass show where Mary Warnoff was a special guest. And of course, I, I asked her about her longstanding relationship with Paul Bartel. For those of you who don't know, uh, Paul Bartel, who plays the science teacher, what is he in the movie? I think he's the science te- or, or the yeah. biology or science, something right. like that. So he's a, a big queen who is in a lot of cult movies. Both of them worked with Roger Corman and they worked together a lot. Mary Warnoff actually got her start being um, a Warhol girl in the movie Chelsea Girls and was also in a relationship with, oh, what's his name from the Velvet Underground? Um, oh, Lou Reed? No. Uh, John Cale? Maybe it's John Cale. Point is, she was in that scene in New York. And yes. somehow she transitions from that sort of really underground art scene to these sort of cult movies in the 70s and 80s, as well as being uh, famously on Charlie's Angels, a really great episode. Angels yeah. and Chains, the best episode, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think is so weird is why do you guys think that she and Paul Bartel, 
you know, this obviously queer man. And I'm guessing maybe she was perceived to be lesbian as my guess, even though she's not. Well, look at look at the Charlie's Angels episode. (laughs) She was the best. she, She was a she was a lesbian. You know, she was obviously supposed to be a lesbian warden or whatever, you know. So yeah. she played up to that stereotype. She read as lesbian. Yeah, yeah, she definitely did. She and Paul Bartel did 14 movies together as, wow. as kind of a paired team. And sometimes it was featured like Eating Raul or Death Race 2000, or they yeah. would just have a cameo like Chopping Mall. But they were paired together a lot. And I think that when you, you look at her career from the Velvet Underground, Warhol scene, to these Corman movies. She was in trauma movies. She had done like a lot of different stuff across the board. The irony of her playing Togar in this movie, who is so vehemently establishment and anti-punk, is no one in this movie is more punk rock than Mary (laughs) Warnov. So I Um, think that's why she's so good, because she gets the joke. And I think that her relationship with Paul Bartel makes sense because he was out and open and queer in Hollywood when you weren't allowed to be that. And that's just Mary Warnoff being punk rock Mary Warnoff. Yeah. Right. Some tea is that, uh, Hecklina, were you at that show where she came? You may uh, remember this as well. I don't remember. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, I remember the events you did that I attended. Um, uh, go. I, I remember she was there. I don't remember every detail. Excuse me. Go ahead. <laughs> so we screened Death Race 2000, and um, a couple of things. One is that when, when she met me, she wasn't particularly friendly, and I was really nervous because she met me and my boyfriend at the time at the airport. We took her to lunch, and Andrew, my ex, actually said that when I got up to use the bathroom, Mary Warnoff like kind of leaned into him and was like, I can't believe that nerd is Peaches Christ. And <laughs> like, of course, of, of course, Andrew told me, which only well, you intimidated me. You are a you know, big nerd. Well, why would anybody be surprised by that? I, I do a cult movie series, you know. Well, because you because you have this image of being, you know, this scary movie person. But of course, uh, right. to, to be a, to be a movie person, that's a nerd, you know. Yeah, if if exactly. you're into movies, you know. Actually, you can be a music nerd. You can be a fashion nerd. You can be a nerd about anything. Totally, and I'm a proud movie nerd for sure. Mm-hmm. And the, the, so we do the show, and 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 I do a performance, and then bring her out, and she gave an awesome interview. She was just fabulous. And then later she said, "Oh, I really, really like you. You know, I'm really glad that went well. You know, my guard was up. You know, I really don't like drag queens." And I was, <laughs> you know, and I thought, "Oh, that's that's interesting." And she may have even said it on stage. Like sometimes I can't remember what was said on stage or what was said off stage. And I was kind of like, "I think she might have said this on stage." I think she was very forthcoming. Like stuff I'm gonna tell you that sounds like tea is, is stuff she said. And what she said was, "Those bitches, Holly, Jackie, Candy." They would steal from you. They lied to you. You know, they were a pack. They were like a wolf pack. And she was like, and I, you know, and I loved how real she was because that's like, wow, that's like, that's good tea, right? Like, so she didn't trust drag queens and they didn't trust her. And uh, she had a similar sort of response to being asked about working with Paul Bartel. I expected her to go on and on about how much she loved him. 
and it was not that. You know, it mm-hmm. was maybe the opposite of that. And um, it was surprising because usually when people get on stage, they, uh, and, and heck, Lena, you know this, like we work with people off stage. They'll tell you all this stuff, right? You get on stage and they have a, a, you know, a poker face, you know, like this is right. what I'm presenting. This is the way I'm going to tell the story or the history. And so we've worked with lots of bands that argue, lots of actors that argue, but they get on stage and they don't reveal that. But Mary Warnoff had no problem saying she did not like Andy Warhol, she did not like Paul Bartel, and she did not like drag queens. And I give her so much respect because at the Midnight Mass audience, like, those are fighting words, you know. <laughs> it also sounds like Mary Warnoff is kind of an unlikable person. You know what I mean? Like, it sounds like, in a way, I probably would like her, but I, I can see how it might not be the best the most fun to be around her sometimes. I think Andy Warhol was unlikable in a way because he was standoffish. And thinking about it now, I really didn't like Hollywood Lawn when I had her in San Francisco. And I also think that those other girls like Jackie Curtis were a bit overrated. I don't know. But I I do like the honesty. Jane Wheatland was the same way, uh, just thinking out loud, because she worked with people like Sparks and uh, people like Rodney Bingenheimer and... She never had a good word to say about any of them, even though she worked with these people really closely, uh, which is which I probably would say about Peaches Christ. I don't have a good <laughs> word to say about her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Something that I always kind of clue in on when looking at the Ramones is even though this movie isn't necessarily queer, and the Ramones certainly don't necessarily have a queerness in the way that we do, when I look at them, there's something draggy about the Ramones, right? Like, especially Joey, but all of them. It's this curated look. It's this curated experience. So I kind of wanted to just get your takes on the drag of being the Ramones. Well, the Ramones were so locked into a vision from the very beginning of Johnny, Joey, Dee Dee, you know, even the whole logo of their T-shirts. You couldn't stray from that look because they went through about 10 drummers in their career and they always had to have the same look, the, the leather jacket, the torn jeans, the, uh, the sneakers, all that stuff. I mean, anything can be drag. If you're going to work in the morning, you're in business drag or whatever. I heard that Joey Ramone was actually really awkward. Obviously, you can see it. He was really out of place. He was a really misunderstood teenager. But the minute he auditioned for this band and was put on stage, people that knew him looked at him and was like, oh, my God, this is what he was meant to do. You know, like he was all of a sudden a rock star once he put all that stuff on. And, you know, Peaches and I can relate. Like, we put it, we're, we, you know, we're just, we're obviously very plain looking. I mean, look at Peaches. But <laughs> if we, but when we put on the wig and all that stuff, that's armor. And we do change when we're on stage. And everybody saw that with Joey Ramone. He changed immediately and became this icon. Now he's like this misanthropic rock and roll star icon. And I know a lot about the Ramones. Johnny Ramone and Joey Ramone hated each other because Johnny stole Joey's girlfriend away from him back in the 80s. They never, ever spoke again. They would go on tour, be on stage together. They never, they never ever spoke. Joey was very OCD. Like, if he touched a door handle, he would have to go back several times to make sure that it was locked or, or that it was, you know... Like, one time he arrived at the airport and, and he went home and, and he was like, oh, my God, I, I forgot to lock that door in the airport. I have to, so he had to go back to the airport. Some weird story like that. Incredibly OCD, tortured, all that stuff. But they had a shared vision. And as much as Johnny hated Joey, 
when Joey died, he's like, well, that's it. The Ramones are, are done because Joey was our singer. So they, they knew about this shared vision. Um, and I think the story is remarkable. And, and again, I think it's really frustrating to me that now I, I go to Walmart and I see Ramones T-shirts on sale, you know, and, and they're right. a brand. They're like a huge brand now and everybody wears them. I get so angry when I see some poser wearing a Ramones T-shirt and I want to ask them, rattle off one Ramones song. Like, tell me, you, and, you know, of course they don't, it's like Kim Kardashian wearing a Ramones t-shirt. I feel like it's such blasphemy. But somebody's making a lot of money now, and I wish it had been the Ramones, because they, they never got the credit when they were together, you know. That's reminiscent of another episode that we've done recently, uh, where we, we spoke with William Castle's daughter, and one of her her biggest, saddest regrets is that her father passed away thinking that he hadn't made an impact, you know, on the world. And of course, we know since then, so many people not only reference William Castle, but have been inspired by William Castle. And it's like, it is a real tragedy. But that's actually, throughout the course of time, many of the greatest artists died. Edgar Allan Poe, it, you know, it, it's like there are these sort of tragic contributors to culture who who never knew, you know, what their legacy would end up becoming. Not that the Ramones necessarily would be excited about their t-shirts being in Walmart, but you know, still it- They would be excited about the money. <laughs> sure. <laughs> of course, of course. The only money they ever made was through their t-shirts because they never sold any records. And even when they were at the height of their popularity, they were touring in vans, you know what I mean? Like mm. they were never playing arenas, you know, all that stuff. So it's, again, it's funny in this movie, going back to Rock and Roll High School, it's funny that they're almost like, you know, ACDC or whatever, you know, like this huge band. <laughs> so. Yeah, Michael, you asked the question about the drag and I think Hecklina answered it really well. But one thing that uh, occurred to me rewatching it was two things. I think it's really interesting that, Michael, you brought up the fact that originally this script might have been for a disco-type movie, or that the title was that, because I do think there's a disconnect. I feel like Riff Randall isn't costumed correctly. If you watch the film, it's like, why is she wearing, like, span shiny spandex half the time? And, you know, now I'm like, oh, did they just have the costumes for the disco movie already ready to go? No, I can actually speak to that because when oh. I was doing research, I discovered that PJ Souls bought all her own clothes for this movie <laughs> and because she felt like the budget for wardrobe on this movie was too low, which historically on Roger Corman productions of the time they were. Hecklina mentions the extras are all Ramones fans. That was not a mistake. They got Ramones fans to come fill out the concert so they didn't have to pay extras. There were all sorts of these things that happened. But PJ Souls bought all of her own costumes. That uh, The jacket came from Fred Siegel, and I guess that every dollar she made on the movie, she spent. Like, she made no money on this movie because she wow. bought the clothes. What is funny, though, I do want to go back to this because I have read interviews with PJ Souls since where she has addressed the fact that she did not like the music before, and she didn't. But as she worked with them, and she, she became friendly with the band, uh, I guess that in later years she has embraced it and thinks of herself as, like, part of Ramon's history, which, of course, she is. But it is, it's just so funny that this movie was made very cheaply. So I love, you know, what Hecklina says about how the band is presented as this huge band, whereas the movie was made for like a pack of gum and like a nickel. The Ramones themselves <laughs> were, were only mm. like paid collectively $25,000 for this movie as a band. And they had to do gigs in LA to pay for their hotel to be here to make the movie. Wow. Wow. That is, I guess, the school of Roger Corman in many ways. Like, there, that was an outsider system and way of making movies. And, you know, just one other thing about the drag of the Ramones. Um, it's interesting watching it 
today as well for the fact that uh, so many young people, you know, dress and look and embrace the awkwardness of the skinny jeans, of the 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 the, the awkward clothes, the poses, the the Converse shoes, all yeah. of it, right? Like that. That is mm-hmm. not like the Ramones still could come out today. They're the only people in that movie that could come out today wearing exactly what they're wearing in the movie and fit into today's culture, no problem, and actually still look cool. You know, which is really saying something. They were way way ahead of their time. The thing I love about the Ramones is they never changed to fit fashion. They were really out of fashion in the mid eighties. You know what I mean? But they still stayed the same. (laughs) Hecklina, actually, we should mention, you have a podcast. I do, I have a podcast. It's called, very creatively, Drag Time with Hecklina. And it's a podcast hosted by me, Hecklina. And every podcast I have a special guest. She's had John Cameron Mitchell. She's had guests that we hope to have someday on our podcast, like Bruce LaBruce, and you know other sort of underground cult icons, as well as all of our favorite drag queens and you know friends. I had Mink Stoll. Mink Stoll. So we did yeah. share that guest. We have we had Mink Stoll recently as well. So I think uh, if if you're interested in drag and cult stuff and cult pop culture, you want to check out Drag Time with Hecklina. And Hecklina, what what is happening with you these days down in Palm Springs? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> During that brief period in May and June when everything was open, you know, blah, 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 COVID is gone. My schedule started to fill up and I, w- I was actually scheduled to be flying out of Palm Springs every month to do parties and host stuff. And then when I was in Iceland... Delta started coming around and little by little, everything started to get canceled. And and I just decided to kind of cancel everything until 2022. You know that 2020 was a, a nonstop series of booking things and having to reschedule or, or cancel them. So I was like, I'm going to try and wait until there's no restrictions. The only thing I have going on this year is we are for sure going to be doing Golden Girls in San Francisco the month of December. So All um, right. And tickets will be going on sale for that pretty soon. When you were in Iceland, did you get to see that perpetually erupting volcano? Isn't it supposed to be erupting for like 30 years? I could see the volcano from the window of where I was staying. So many of my friends had gone to make the trek up when the volcano was erupting. And I was like, okay, the minute it erupts, I have to go up there. And the night that I was that I did my show, I did the show uh, with Sherry Vaughn and Lady Bunny and a bunch of the Icelandic drag queens. I did two shows, then I was getting home exhausted, and I turned the corner onto the street where I was staying, and I saw this, you know, red lava spewing up in the air, and I was like, oh my God, it's active right now. It was like one in the morning, and I just couldn't do it. It was a two-hour trek to the volcano, an hour's walk up to the top of the volcano, and it just would have been too much. So I never got that iconic, you know, footage or view or whatever, but I could see it directly from where I was staying. It was it was amazing. I saw all of these photos of people. A gay couple got married in front of that volcano. I think I saw on, on Instagram. Oh, that's hot. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I do love is the most punk rock thing that we could do in a rock and roll high school episode is derail and talk about other things than rock and roll high school, <laughs> which we've done. Uh, did you know this, Michael? Hecklina's named after an Icelandic volcano. I did. Yes. Yeah, so so that's where her name comes from. It's Heck, the, the volcano Hecla. Well, I mean, what more can you say about Rock and Roll High School? It was a, a weird anomaly of a movie. It was kind of an accident that happened, um, which I guess, you know, 
cult movies, that's what cult movies are. Well, one thing I did want to talk about briefly with you, because I love that this whole movie is centered around the Ramones, and they're like the center of the universe, and we've seen time and again these band movies, like A Hard Day's Night or Spice World, or these movies that incorporate the act into it. And, you know, the Beatles act in those movies, the Spice Girls act, and the one thing that the Ramones really kind of can't do is act. And that's mm-hmm. not that's not a dig. They've talked about it. They like they have right. owned the fact that they were not uh I love if you look at the history of the movie like Dee Dee was supposed to say seven words in the movie and couldn't deliver so only says two. And yet Joey Ramone gives my favorite line reading in the movie is when he gets the sheet movie because he's, he's like, rock and roll high school, far out. Oh, I know. Me, yeah. me too. I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was saying. <laughs> and isn't that when the manager's trying to feed him wheat germ and stuff? Yeah. Because <laughs> the manager is really, is really a, portrayed as a douchebag, which I thought was interesting. Because, you know, you'd think maybe they would portray the manager of the Ramones as someone maybe a little more cool or relatable or likable, but they didn't. And the other thing, like, I think is so bizarre. There's two things that I think are so, is so bizarre that I, I, I have to mention. One is Ron Howard's brother's whole character. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, is that an adult who's supposed to be, like, working in a bathroom stall? You know, solving high school kids' problems. <laughs> like I, I was like, is this a is this a high school student? Like, what is this character? Well, and he's kind of creepy. He's creepy, anyway, isn't he? So yeah, creepy. That, that I actor. mean, yeah, yeah. Every so, movie, I've, every film I've ever seen him in. What's the horror creepy. movie where he plays the ice cream man? It's called. Wait for it. The ice cream man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 I swear, and I'm not even being cheeky. That is like his best movie. Like if you haven't seen it, it is actually quite good in a fun horror movie. But yeah, his whole thing don't get it. And then the other thing I, I'm like baffled by are Principal Togar's goons. Like where did these two? Are they students? Where did they? come from who are they also they're weird like boy scout hall monitor outfits like when i went to school hall monitors didn't wear fucking weird shit like what is that they're dressed like nazi youth yeah (laughs) nazi youth and and they're also like her her winged monkeys like she's like the wicked witch you know it's true yeah it's it's very bizarre but nothing that makes sense you know i don't know in that movie it does none of it makes sense, which is kind of why I love it, you know. Well, did you know that there was a sequel uh, made later? I think it was in the '80s with Corey Feldman called "Rock and Roll High School Forever." No, no. I mean, I have no follow up. That's just, uh, <laughs> it, 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 but it, it. I've never seen it, but it exists. I know that it exists. Uh, uh, okay. I, I suspect that because we're not doing a Rock and Roll High School Forever episode, that kind of tells you probably where it falls since none of us have seen it. Are there any Corey Feldman movies you guys love? The Lost Boys. Oh, The Lost Boys, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That movie does hold up. Like, I, I watched it not too long ago, and, and I definitely think it's Joel Schumacher's best movie. It's a great movie. It is. Right, and Corey Feldman is a, plays a pivotal role in the Friday the 13th franchise. He's in Gremlins. He, ha- he is a cult figure, for sure. This could have been your drag name if you weren't named after a, a volcano. It could have been Corey Felchman. I do not enjoy <laughs> felching. <laughs> Let's see. We we've really dug deep into rock and roll high school and and really I think covered everything that needs to be covered. And I think one thing I really appreciate about a movie like this is I appreciate how much Hecklina appreciates it. And I think through 
her appreciation, I was able to watch it and enjoy it more. And certainly it's undeniable that the Ramones are magic and watching them in the film without the Ramones, like, you know, it's just, you don't have anything really. Right. Well, and I think that does beg for the last question. You know, we've been talking about the punk rock DNA, how this film kind of goes against the grain, how Hecklina discovered it at a young age through her love of the Ramones. And Hecklina, of course, anyone who knows your work and your trajectory through the world of, of nightlife and drag is that you have a punk rock edge. And so I want to know, is there a little rock and roll high school in what you do? Is, did that inform your work? I think that there, were, there was more, there were, there's a little bit of Ramones in me. And, uh, and, and, like, and like Peaches said, if the Ramones were not in this movie, I would, I would not be into it, you know? Um, the Ramones to me were always pure rock and roll. I love things that are absolutely pure rock and roll, back to the basics. I love Iggy and the Stooges. I love all the stuff out of Detroit, the MC5. I love David Bowie, Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground. I could go on, but you know, I love things that are uh, absolute pure. I hate things that are pretentious and bloated, like a lot of rock and roll became. And you needed things like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones to save rock and roll. And uh, that's why I like this movie. Truly final question, I promise. You know, we, we may be actually speaking to, um, hopefully, some, some young people who are learning about these things for the first time. A kid wants to get into the Ramones. They want to go and listen to a Ramones album. It's the first time um, they're going to go and check out the Ramones. Where do they start? What album do they dive into first? The first album, which is just called The Ramones, Rocket to Russia, Road to Ruin. Those are like the three essential ones. And then um, some of the ones and later on you can kind of skip. But if you want to get really essential, just get the anthology. Hey ho, let's go. The Ramones anthology. There you have it. Well, it used to be a two CD, but now just go buy it on iTunes. Right. (laughs) That's your Midnight Mass homework. Also, be sure to get the single for Pet Cemetery because, you know, that was so fun. They did do the theme song for Pet Cemetery, the movie, which I would, I think we should cover Pet Cemetery someday. I'm kind of obsessed with Pet Cemetery, more so lately in my adulthood and just the the whole story around Mary Lambert and the making of that film. Oh, there you go. You've got, you've got the cat. What's the cat's name again? Church. Church, right. Duh. How can I forget that? Um, anyway, Heplina, it has been such a pleasure having you on the Midnight Mass podcast. We're going to have you back for Liquid Sky. Yay! And perhaps some other films. This has been great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Heplina. Thanks for having me. The kid is my baby away. The girl away. Away from me. The kid, kid, kid is my baby away. And we would like to apologize to everybody for perhaps having the most ineffective, awful guest we've ever had on the podcast in the history of Midnight Mass. Yes, that was Hecklina, and I am so deeply sorry. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> kidding. That was fantastic. So Hecklina and I obviously go way, way back. You know, we do share a love of a lot of things, but... It was really exciting to me when we chose to talk about Rock and Roll High School because that's something that she and I haven't really gotten to discuss very often because that was like sort of her cult movie and I wasn't as tuned into it. We've talked about Halloween, the movie, a million times and just how wonderful it is. But this was great. That was a great talk and it really shed some light on how important not just this movie was, but music in general, you know, was to Heclina 
and coming into her own. Well, what I really love about the conversation, too, is I think there's probably from the outside looking into the world of queer men and drag, this idea that a lot of entertainers in our space only gravitate towards the divas to pop music and this and that. But you know, as well as I do, that there is a strong affinity to punk, rock and roll, anti-establishment, otherness that also is a through line through a lot of of drag circles. And of course, uh, kind of Hecklina's whole legacy and the club nights that she's curated come from a punk rock background. And to hear Hecklina talk about how a band like the Ramones informed that trajectory of her career is really powerful and fascinating to me. Yeah, and in equal measure, she has a similar obsession with Liza Minnelli. So hilariously, we could have actually, maybe we will, we could have her back on to talk about Cabaret, which is, you know, maybe a movie that we should should actually cover because it's so freaking amazing and, and definitely qualifies as cult. Hecklina has an obsession with Cabaret and Liza Minnelli, which you would consider uh, to be maybe uh, more what you'd expect from a drag superstar. But let's face it, Hecklina is actually way more masculine than the Ramones are. You know, uh, the Ramones are fantastically more glamorous than she is. So, you know, of course I'm throwing shade a little bit, but am I? Am I, Michael? <laughs> Who's to even say anymore? What I really enjoyed getting to talk to you both about is sort of the general drag presentation of the Ramones. Because I think when, again, we talk from an outside looking in perspective of what drag is, and you and I have had many, many, many conversations about this over the years. Drag on on a more macro level is, is persona curation. It's taking reality and turning it into a heightened space. And everything about the Ramones to me is a little bit drag because you know those guys didn't start looking like that and dressing like that and affecting like that but they did it in a way to curate a concept to curate an idea that became kind of like the bedrock of punk rock and i loved getting your take and her take about how that's kind of drag and very much a great way for us to sort of scratch the surface about why this particular film would appeal to outsiders and others in that discussion of, well, is rock and roll high school queer? And obviously, you know, we're a cult movie podcast and not everything that we're gonna discuss does it have to be queer in order for us to cover it. That being said, so much of what we consider to be cult movies, so many of them, so many of the the tenets would include transgressiveness and queerness inherently. Well, and I think the reason for that is, is cult movies are essentially other you know if they were yeah widely beloved if they were mainstream if they were the multiplex movies they wouldn't they would be embraced in a different way and so they wouldn't necessarily be cult because cult movies are sort of formed against the grain of of the pop culture and by inherently being other there is a queer connection to it because who understands otherness better than queer people or marginalized people, you know? I think that there's always going to be a slight crossover, even if it's not always surface level. Yeah, for sure. And I think this conversation we had with Hecklina, I think some people might be surprised by it because we do go there and we kind of get to a deeper level and it's not all, you know, 
rimming humor or whatever. Um, you know, we, we actually, you know, have a, have a nice conversation about this. And I think you and I were pleasantly surprised uh, when we spoke to our next guest who we're about to introduce because she kind of brought a different perspective about the queerness. And, you know, uh, you know, her insight came from a different point of view. And I think it was great. Our next guest, she is a fabulous friend to both of us and someone I admire greatly. It's author Michelle T. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, you cannot have a cult film without the cult members who make it up. And luckily, we have not only an avowed fan of Rock and Roll High School, but she's an award-winning and critically acclaimed author of such groundbreaking books as Against Memoir, How to Grow Up, Black Wave, Valencia, and Modern Tarot. She's also the founder of Drag Queen Story Hour and the producer of thousands of live events across the world, a writer extraordinaire, filmmaker, producer, punk icon. Please welcome to the show, Michelle T. Yay! Oh my goodness! Thank you for for that twenty one gun salute. I really appreciate it. It's so fun to be here. Well, Michelle, I mean, honestly, when we, as we were saying before we went on the air, when I thought of this movie uh, and we were preparing for this episode, you immediately came to mind because. I guess a little bit in my heart, you're you're a whole lot Riff Randall to me. So, and and I know you love this movie. So, I guess the obvious place to start is: Do you remember when you first saw Rock and Roll High School? I mean, I kind of remember the house I was living in. We moved around a lot when I was a kid, and we always had cables. So we had like the movie channel, and I think that was kind of all there was at that time. Um, and I, I I almost wonder: Did I see the movie, or did I just obsessively watch the preview for it? on the movie channel because there are all these movies that are like lodged in my psyche but my parents wouldn't let me watch them but I was I would addictively wait in between the movies where they would show the previews for what they were showing that month and I really remember just seeing like the school exploding and like Mary Warnoff's like mean teacher mean principal character and Riff Randall is just like I feel like it really hit me in some sort of like femme spot where I'm like that's how, that's the kind of girl I want to be. I want to look like that. Like she was so like, I mean, she's very queer, right? I mean, she's, there's something sort of like androgynous about the way she presents herself. Um, She's not really wearing like dresses. She's wearing some makeup, but she just looks like kind of like Punky Brewster plus like glam 70s. Like, and then of course the Ramones, the Ramones are so incredible in it. And, um, I, you know, gosh, I'm thinking that I had to have been in about maybe like fifth grade, the house that I was in, fourth or fifth grade. And that was a great um, time for me as far as like suddenly waking up to pop culture. That was when I started really being aware that there were things maybe that were cool and things that maybe I didn't think were, you know, like I had preferences. <laughs> right. And, you know, and I I preferred things that looked like rock and roll high school. I love that knowledge of as a young person starting to identify with what I like 
matters and it's part of my identity and it's part of how I express myself is by saying, I like this thing. This is the music I like. This is the, these are the movies I like. I think before then we as kids just naturally like what we like, but there is this sort of um, shift where we realize like, oh, this is actually how I can express my identity is through being a fan of this this pop culture things. I love that. I hadn't actually thought about that, but I immediately started to connect with myself at the same time period, you know, as far as, oh yeah, that's about the time that I realized that part of my identity was horror, you know, and, and being into horror. So for you, punk music and that sort of attitude. And I also love that you bring up right away the queerness of her character, because then it led me to realize, oh yeah, and there's actually something queer about the Ramones as well, that they both are masculine, but also very soft and very kind of androgynous in some ways, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, went into a little bit of like a Ramones K-hole after after rewatching <laughs> the movie this week and I was looking at some pictures and some candid pictures not really posed and I'm like if Joey Ramone was alive today, would they have changed their pronoun? Like this person right. really is reading like a trans woman to me or yeah. like at least non-binary. Like there's something and it's like, oh, sure. Like, you know, rockers are androgynous. Punk is androgynous. But there's just something really in the way they're they're embodied almost where I'm just like, wow, there's something so queer about Joey Ramone. Mm-hmm. Um I love the part in the movie where um, Riff Randall says that he looks like a poem or he looks like poetry. <laughs> right. Ah, oh, I love that. I'm like, it's so true. There's something so um, ethereal about him. Do either of you know what his astrological sign was? I don't know. I don't. He seems like real Pisces, like a real Pisces vibe. But there's something so both beautiful about him and then like really weirdly homely at the same time where it's right. just like... Yeah, and and I, I mean, that's kind of queer too, I think, just like finding the beauty in what we traditionally think of as, you know, unattractive or unacceptable. He was what a I, Taurus. He's a Taurus? Oh, yes. I love it. Oh, wow. <laughs> just doggedly doing his thing, man. Yeah. Doing his thing. Mm-hmm. What I love about the discussion of the queerness of this movie is we also spoke to Hecklina because this movie is very, very uh, near and dear to Hecklina and her her formative years. And um, we talked, of course, about sort of the dragginess of the Ramones. You know, they all have a specific outfit. There's a certain look there to curate this personality. But one of the things that we talked about in that conversation was how a lot of cult films do have a certain queerness. And this one is a little bit, you have to dig a bit more for it. And I'm glad that you went there first, Michelle, because I think it would have been easy for Peaches, Heclina, and I as as cis gay men to sit and talk about the movie and our approach to the queerness of it. But your, your looking at the queerness of it is a little different. And I think that's important because do you, do you think that when uh, you're exploring like the femme punk themes there, there there's a overt queerness to this film? I detected a lot of gay vibes between Riff and her best friend, the little science nerd girl. What, yeah. her, what was her name? I forget, but she's the, she's the one pining after... She's the, the jerk, the loser. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Which is so frustrating. Yeah, totally. But the way she looks at Riff throughout the movie, it's mm. like she's in love with Riff Randall. She's just like, this girl is amazing. She's just like, it's, it's really kind of beautiful. Like that they have this 
friendship that's sort of, un- I mean, she does go after the, the stupid dude and hooks up with the stupid dude and everything, but like their friendship is really uninterrupted by all of that stuff. And it almost seems like an aside. Um, and like the, the real relationship is kind of between them. And even Riff's relationship with the Ramones is so fantastical. It's such a fantasy. I love the scene where she's like in her bed smoking oh. weed and then it goes into this dream sequence where she's like, I don't know, sitting on their laps and stuff. It's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, it, it almost seems like these other things are, you know, playful, but like this, the real core relationship is, is Riff and this girl who just adores her. I think that's such a great insight and what you're saying connects so well because I think part of why I found it frustrating that she was pining for that um, douchebag guy whose character is so bizarre. So dumb and weird. So With the weather. The weather's today is great, isn't it? Like, what is that weird (laughs) joke that they keep doing? I was like, it's that one wasn't funny. (laughs) I I can't figure out what the intention was with him, which is actually part of what I like about the movie, but... You feel like the actors, especially the, the, the woman performing that role, was giving us the, those sort of um, doughy eyes when she would look at Riff Randall. And, you know, you feel the writer's hand more, you know, uh, with this dialogue of her being so crushed out on this boy, because that's not really, it's not adding up for us, you know, right. with the performance. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, they're like, well, we have to do this. It's like right. 1970, whatever, and we have to make a boy meets girl, you know beeline or else we'll never get our movie made or something but um yeah it, it doesn't add up um no god my mind is reeling with like all the different like that guy eagle bauer who they right. go to like it who has like the secret room in the boys bathroom and gives advice like what, what like people were so there? high when they wrote this yes. movie It's very of that National Lampoon's moment, right? And I think that what I'm fascinated by as we're digging into this discussion with Day Young is the actress who plays the uh, character that's pining after Riff Randall that we're talking about. Okay, okay, cool. um, I what I really like about this is, yeah, we're seeing kind of the writer force their hand because it's 1970, whatever. It, there's a very heteronormative streak to how we write movies. But by introducing punk into this film and the kind of punk ethos, there's an otherness. And you've got this girl who has this best friend is so ultra and so other, and she idolizes it. And there is this kind of queerness to that because while they're trying to be like, of course you want to love the football player, she wants to love individuality and otherness more. And I think that that's really, really kind of something you just blew the lid off of that I think is, is amazing. Oh my God, I'm getting chills. It's so true. <laughs> I love that. And I love what, uh, like, like Riff Randall is such a, like an irrepressible leader. Like she's the leader of rock and roll high school. Like she wrote the theme song. She's the DJ. Like she's the one throwing the party. And, you know, that never gets usurped really. I mean, obviously the principal, you know, the the institution tries to crush her spirit as it will. But like she is never really punished. She totally wins. I love when she takes over the gym class. That whole scene is so incredible with all of a sudden everyone's a gymnast and like people are doing crazy flips. Like you're (laughs) like, what is going on? That part, it was very inspired, I thought. And it's exactly the kind of thing that as an adult, you know, rewatching it, I had a very strange reaction to it where I was like, I don't remember this or I don't remember that. Actually, this might piss off some of the listeners because we obviously play to a cult movie audience. There was a point while watching the movie where I was like, why? Why did I like this? You know, and <laughs> and I say that with all due respect. Yeah. But through these conversations, putting myself in the shoes of a young person 
who saw it. It is that classic story of rebellion and a fantasy of the outsider teenager winning, you know, yes. against all odds and specifically winning through their, you know, love of a band and punk music. And, and that's so great. And the way that Riff Randall is allowed to be femme, pretty, flamboyant, weird, and the hero of this narrative is really the reason I loved it. Yeah. Rewatching it, I was focusing on things like the guy in the bathroom or whatever, you know. That like, is so weird. Do you know that that's Ron Howard's brother? That actor yes. is Ron Howard's like Republican <laughs> brother? Oh, I didn't know he was a Republican. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he is. I don't uh, want to start a rumor. Oh, but well, <laughs> speaking of which, we haven't even brought this up yet. I think Michael and I have been avoiding it, but oh, dear listeners, disappointingly, years ago, through a sheer love and adoration, I asked PJ Souls to be my friend on oh, no. Facebook. And, oh, no. and she agreed and she accepted me. And we actually, you know, had a back and forth. This is years ago, like when I first got on Facebook. Um, I will say this. As a woman who starred in three of the most important cult movies ever made, right? Rock and Roll High School, Carrie, and Halloween. She is an icon. Yeah. And her contribution to cinema can never be taken away. But she has also grown up to be an incredibly problematic person. No. I think we were going to kind of avoid it, Michael. But then now that we're talking about it, it's like, yeah, that just happens sometimes. It you sure know? does. Yeah. And it sucks when it happens because we love these people. I mean, God, we've all seen people we love and admire. I mean, she's no Bill Cosby. Don't get me wrong, you know. <laughs> but I will say this. Being her Facebook friend, there's been many times where I'm like, oh, God, oh, no, oh, no, you know definitely gone down a conservative road. Um. Sure, but to, to swing things around as I do on the, on the show to <laughs> the things that we can look at positively about this movie, what's fascinating, of course, is when you look at Rock and Roll High School and she plays this kind of paragon of rebellion and the person who is the opposition, the, the, you know, the establishment is Mary Warnov. <laughs> right. The real reality of Rock and Roll High School is the single most punk rock person in this movie. <laughs> Maybe in some ways more than the themselves is Mary yes. Warnov. Absolutely. Because you've got someone who comes from the Warhol factory who like did exploitation cinema and worked with trauma and did this and Roger Corman was always on the forefront of the like flip the finger to the establishment. It to me, them casting her as the tough as nail square principal is the best joke of all. Because it really we, is. if you know anything about her, she's punk rock. She yeah. is so punk. And she is such a like a legitimately great actress. Like I loved watching her. She never cracks. She's like so arch and so and like those her little weird hall, hall monitor minions. I was saying to Hecklina and Michael, what is going on there? Where did they come from? Who are they? It's like Ursula and her little um eels, you know. <laughs> <laughs> totally because they're so weird because like they're her they're her minions and then they're like out in the hall and they're smoking and they're super rapey and like just like yeah. big creeps there's like all they're always like you know running running after the female students in this really physical yeah. aggressive way and the women are screaming and then there's a blackout and somebody emerges with their clothing disheveled it's like super disturbing but yeah. you're like it's the 70s I'm just gonna overlook that and keep en <laughs> enjoying the Ramones concert it's weird to look back on some of that stuff I don't think I ever really loved it. One of the films that I loved so, so much as a kid that I cannot watch now is Sixteen Candles just because oh, you know, I, know. I, I find it so offensive. There's the Long Duck Dong character 
that is so rotten and so racist and mm-hmm. so hard to watch. But then there's just other weird things like her grandmother scrabbing her tits and yeah. like like weird, you know, like weird things that played as comedy before that we just accepted. And and watching it now, there was a lot of that in Rock and Roll High School. I mean, and those minions are dressed as Nazi youth, which yeah. is, is sort of a weird. <laughs> You know. Whoa, I didn't even get that, but that makes but, so much sense because she yeah. looks like very like SS yes. in her in her attire too. They had much more of a, a, a casual approach to those things that, you know, we put a bigger lens on. But I was going to say, just to follow up on what you all were saying, and we talked about Mary Warnoff with Heclina, is that's another queering that I really appreciate in the movie that even though Principal Togar is the establishment, Mary Warnoff is still allowed to be very beautiful in this yes. film. I mean, very, very sexy and very masculine, which yeah. I think is also like something that she did very well. And I was looking up my bookshelf to see if I could see it. But for those of you who are interested in knowing more about her, she has a great book called Swimming Underground. Oh, such a classic. Isn't such that a great, great book. Yes, it's incredible. Looking for a book to read and yet you're interested in Mary Warnoff at all, that's a fabulous recommendation. I love how many buns she has in one hairdo. <laughs> in that. Right? It's like count the buns. She's got like four or five, three, just like weird amounts of buns in different scenes. Her hair is incredible. <laughs> You know what I think it has to be remarked upon in discussing this film is that when you make a movie about a band, right, you know, A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles are sort of centered. Spice World, the Spice Girls are centered. But this is a movie that's about the Ramones that the Ramones are kind of questionably in. And I'm wondering if that's part of the allure because those movies are about the bands, but this movie's more about the obsession. And do you think that's kind of what connects people to it? Because it's more relatable in that way. It really is. It's like, you're like, oh, I could be in rock and roll high school. Like, I'm a fan. Like, what a dream come true. Like, what if, like, my favorite band somehow descended upon my high school and, like, got to be in my world? It's really, and it's fun how, like, I mean, I don't think the Ramones could, like, hold up a movie on their own. (laughs) Like, they're like... (laughs) I don't know about their acting chops, but they're delightful to watch. Like, you know, there's that those points in the film where it's when it suddenly turns into like a concert movie where they're just we're just seeing them perform whole songs. And it's so fun. I'm like, wow, I really love just watching them do their thing. They're so alive in their music. They're so perfectly the Ramones. And, you know, it's fun to see them like trying to act a little bit. But I think if they were (laughs) if they were featured anymore, it would have really been much more of a I don't I don't know it wouldn't have worked <laughs> I think some of the Ramones don't have lines at all I, I I believe that when we were talking to Hecklina I had read that one of them had something like 14 words and they cut it down to seven they were just like look <laughs> let's let's uh play on your strengths and it's not this. Oh my god, absolutely. It's a true testament to their strengths as performers, as as we all know, being movie lovers, that they could be in the movie the way that they are and that it's still so compelling and dynamic. In fact, I think it's the best part of the movie is their concert sequence, that extended concert sequence, because live performance, we know, it rarely translates very well to cinema. If it did, we would have way more concert films being made for exhibition. We don't. You know, I can think of a handful, like Truth or Dare, I think, you know, Madonna, that Blonde Ambition tour, the way they shot it, the way she performed it, the dancing, the costumes. Yeah. It was cinematic. Like, you you went to the theater and you did not get bored watching her do Express Yourself or Vogue or whatever. Right. It worked. And this movie, that was the biggest takeaway for me, rewatching it, like, oh, it's the Ramones. They are magic. And the movie does capture that part of them. 
I saw them when I was in high school. I saw them oh. play at, but where was it? It was someplace in Boston where I was growing up. And I was really, you know, I was a little teenage goth alcoholic. I got too drunk too quick. And oh. I got the spins and I was standing at the way back of this really packed venue. It was an all ages show. God bless them for their all ages shows, right? And I was just sitting there kind of leaning against the wall, trying not to, trying to just like get myself together. It's very dark. And somebody, some very tall person comes up to me and asks me if I have any aspirin. And I'm like, I don't, you know, I need some too. Sorry. It was Joey Ramone. He then was like, okay. And then he got on the stage. I was like, oh my God, Joey Ramone just asked me for an aspirin. (laughs) It made up for the fact that, you know, I never moved off the wall for the duration of the show. So I didn't really see very much. I just sort of heard them. At least you had that moment because as a young person who also drank too much, um, I don't regret a ton, but there are are things where it's like, oh my God, I was at this amazing place at this amazing time, but I was too drunk to experience it. I will say this, I do look at people now and I go, because I I don't drink anymore, I go, wait, do you really need to be on your phone right now? You know, like I have the regrets of like, you know, being blacked out or drunk in the past, but you know, I don't know that filming it would have made it any better. It's like, be in the moment, you know, like you're at a concert, you get to soak it all up. and, And why are you watching it through your phone when you could watch it? in person, you know. It's so annoying to be at a concert and just realize you're in a sea of screens. Like, everyone's got their screens up. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I went to one concert and I know we're deviating, but I, this is a rock and roll episode. Uh, I went to one <laughs> concert recently. Well, not recently. This is before the pandemic. The band allowed you to have your phone kind of the way they do photography at big concerts. You're allowed to have your phone out for the first two songs. And it was placebo. I loved that they said, fine, we get it. You're addicted. You need this. So for the first two numbers, you can all have your phones out. But after that, if you take your phone out, security will remove you. And I loved it because it kind of, it satiated that crazy need that people have. They got to get their footage and then they just put their phones away for the rest of the night. And it worked. It was beautiful. And I kind of feel like, okay, maybe for concerts, placebo is the way to go. Like, okay, you can have your phone out for the first number. And after that, no more. It does beg the question for punk shows, though. Like, I, those were a lot of the shows I went to in college. I went to garage shows. I went to basement shows. I went to, like, the kind of crazier venues that the Ramones would play at. And I would see bands like Alkaline Trio or The Misfits and all of those guys. I wouldn't want to get my phone out at those shows. Like, you may not come back with a phone. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, Michelle. Yeah, it'd be smacked out of your hand. Some punk's going to grab it and, like, fling it in the pit. Bye, phone. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I loved all those kinds of shows as well, but I was definitely the person standing off to the side and in the background because I was, you know, as much as I – wanted to to thrash around with everyone else i i it was just not my style but i did love the music I remember once going to see ministry and i attempted to uh get in there and after being thrown around a few times i was like no I'll, i'm fine watching ministry from the back of the room you know? <laughs> oh my gosh let's love the music i love the experience but yeah you know i didn't need to to thrash around so much So bringing it back to the movie, Michelle, I do want to ask, you connected with this movie at a specific time where you're looking at the rock and roll and the punk of the movie and you're seeing this kind of femme representation that you were like, I want that, that's me. And a lot of times when we talk about cult films, cult films are movies that grow with us or like, you know, we bring with us through our life for some reason. And uh, when we reached out to you, I know you rewatched the movie and kind of revisited it for the first time in a while. And... 
on a macro level, how how's your relationship with this movie changed? That's a great question. I mean, I um I think on a macro level, I think it's one of those things. This also happened to me when I did a rewatch of Pee-wee's Big Adventure after a really big gap when I looked at Dottie, the character Dottie, and I'm like, oh, wait, I'm Dottie. Like, and wow. I just I just sort of, like, ingested her and assimilated her. And, like, like I, I wear my hair like Dottie, like, five days out of the week, you know? <laughs> and I felt like that about Riff Randall. I was like, oh, wow, I really internalized that character and then sort of almost forgot about her. So I feel really happy to, like, have her back. I think she, like, stands the test of time 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, there's all those, like, weird rapey, stuff in the you know the the male characters in the film sort of are terrible are dumb you know they're they're all really dumb but the female characters are great you know like that that friendship it it stands the test of time and i love the ramones so much like they are the equivalent of comfort food to me you know they're like musical comfort food and and i feel like that was my first real exposure to them and so that clearly like really stuck with me also um that i had this lifelong love of them and now, you know, I didn't know who Mary Warnov was when I was in fifth grade, but now, you know, now I'm such a huge fan of hers. As also a writer who produces events, I got to like put her in a couple of events, and that was insane and and so much fun. Um, I remember I have to share because it's such a great story that I had. Um, you know, I have a very chipper personality, even when I'm dying inside. It's just who I am, right? So like I had brought her. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm a sober alcoholic, and this was during a time when I knew I had to get sober, but I was sort of in denial, and I just wasn't drinking. I was like white knuckling it. I brought her to read at the Bearded Lady in San Francisco, which is this like infamous, you know, dyke cafe that used to be there, and I would I'd program events. And she was like, Michelle. You're always so happy every time I see you. Are you on a medication? And I said, <laughs> <laughs> and I asked, she was like so displeased with me. Like she was just like, what's wrong with you? And I said, no, I'm, and I was really just holding it together by a thread in that moment. And I was like, no, I'm actually really depressed, but I don't see any reason, you know, to put everybody else through it. She was like, well, what's the matter with you? And I was like, well, you know, I'm trying not to, to drink or use drugs. And she was like, oh, well, that's the problem. Life is horrible without drugs and alcohol. And I was just, <laughs> like okay all right all right so it's going to be like this forever okay thanks mary (laughs) this incredible interaction like i just fucking love her she's such a true diva and so you know i i feel like the movie is even more of a gem for me that i did grow into it and that the as i got older and my interest in you know underground culture grew and went into different areas i learned even more about this film that was so interesting and exciting you know so yeah it's a real it's definitely one of my classics i think there's these mary warnoff moments that like you know we will all if you've if you've interacted with her uh she delivers. She's she the does. real deal. Yep. And um, she doesn't suffer fools. Nope. She's and, a queen. And she tells it like it is. She recounts her life in a very honest way, you know, and, and does not protect anybody, really. Like, yeah. And I really like that because, you know, she is so much of the reason we love so many movies. In fact, Michael and I are definitely in the future going to do one of our special idol worship episodes of Midnight Mass dedicated to just her uh. and her her whole career because of what an incredible icon she is and what a what a wonderful career she's had. Oh, I love that. I look forward to that. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, you know, I think in closing, it's just 
really great that we got to revisit this movie with you and, and kind of through this lens of what you said, the adopting of the character of Riff Randall and seeing her as, as this kind of queer femme icon that you carry with you, because what better indicator of a cult film's impact than that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I will never not see you, Michelle, and think about Riff Randall and Dottie you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm looking... <laughs> so for the listeners, we, we we can see each other right now, and I'm just like, oh, my God, she's right. There is a lot of Dottie and Riff Randall. Yeah, I, I totally see it. And I love that. I love... I love that you so eloquently made the connection between how these movies imprint on us at a young age and how it can play out for years and years and years in ways we don't even see. You yeah. know, until later we, we, we may acknowledge it or maybe not. You know, mm-hmm. you may have never watched Rock and Roll High School again. Yeah, it's really true. And, and not have remembered the impact yeah. and realized the, you know, how, how it really sunk into my psyche. So thank yeah. you for this opportunity to revisit it. So fun. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for being a guest, Michelle. You're welcome. That was the amazing Michelle T, fabulous author, producer, filmmaker, one of my fave people. Uh, and I absolutely love Peaches. The kind of recontextualizing of rock and roll high school that Michelle brought to our conversation, as we said when we were introducing her in between the interview with Hecklina and her, was Michelle brought a whole new perspective to the movie that you and I, I think, really needed to hear. Because when we talked to Hecklina, we did kind of have this moment of of maybe harsh criticism where we didn't necessarily recognize the queerness of rock and roll high school in the way that it's presented because I think we were looking at it from the lens of three cis gay men. And then Michelle came in and looked at it from a different queer perspective and was like, oh no, there's a lot more queerness here than maybe you're seeing. And that's the great thing about cult cinema is different perspectives open up different boxes to explore. And I'm so grateful that we had that conversation with her. I think her connection to when she saw this movie for the first time and how it imprinted upon her um, was so fantastic. And not only as a friend of hers or someone that's a fan of hers can note, when she basically says that she's a combo of Riff Randall and Dottie, from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, it's like, oh my God, that's so fantastic. And Michelle is one of the sweetest, positive people you could be around. She's such a joy. And so getting to talk about Rock and Roll High School and what is so wonderful about it, it makes me kind of nostalgic for that period of time when you're a teenager and your fandom of something is so intense. Yeah. What was it when you, Michael, you were high school age, what band was it that did it for you the way the Ramones do it for Riff? Probably a few. I had quite a bizarre amalgamation of music tastes, much like we talked about, like Heclina going from Liza Minnelli to the Ramones and back again. That was sort of like, I loved pop music, but I also loved hair metal. Like it was kind of at the end of the 80s, early 90s. I was big into Guns N' Roses for a hot minute. But I will... T- really? Yeah, it's surprising to a lot of people. I could have sworn you had a... Uh, an affinity for the 
Bear Backstreet Boys. Uh, <laughs> I did see the Backstreet Boys in concert. Uh, <laughs> the only band that I had like a rebellious moment for was when Green Day's, uh, I think it was when the Warning album came out. I actually skipped school to get it because I was like, I want to go get that album. Ooh. And I did get a Saturday detention, but it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> for, for me, I have a couple that I was obsessed with, but the one that kind of really, really took over everything was Depeche Mode. And I think because I discovered Depeche Mode at such a young age, you know, when their People Are People song came out in the early, mid-80s, I think it was 84, um, you know, I, I I knew them as a top 40 band because that song was so successful. But then they, they sort of were this sort of alternative band, you know, in, in Black Celebration and Music for the Masses and uh, then Depeche Mode 101. I was just obsessed. And then, of course, they became a top 40 band again with the the album Violator. And much like a lot of Ramones fans, I remember being pissed off that these sort of normies liked this band that was supposed to be for just us weirdos. You know, they had come out with a personal Jesus and enjoy the silence. And I remember that same thing happening yeah. with Ramones fans. And Hecklina talks about, you know, how their t-shirts are now sold in Target. They've been commodified, you know. It is this thing that fans have to go through when you've loved something and it's been it's been part of your brand or your identity that, that it is alternative. When it goes mainstream, it's such a, it's hard. It's a strange journey, right? I mean, I did mention Green Day, and Green Day, of course, began as a Southern California punk band that played garages and basements and things. And then by the time the American Idiot album came out, they were headlining, headlining arenas. And I know a lot of punk you know, friends of mine were very not okay with that moment in time because they're like, no, that's like, that's a sellout thing. I loved that album, so it didn't bother me, but it is, it's an interesting conversation when these entities are part of the counterculture somehow bleed over into the mainstream and how we reconcile that. The other one uh, that you you kind of brought to mind that I was always obsessed with was Liz Fair. And that first Liz Fair album, Exile and Guyville, was like as lo-fi punk rock underground as you could get. And by the time she came out with her uh, self-titled album, it was the same thing where people were like, she's gone mainstream. And I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about it because she's one of my faves and I, I love her. But I get it. I understand that conversation. Well, I never stopped loving Depeche Mode. Right. As much as I was annoyed that they had become everyone's band, I never stopped loving them. I mean, to this day, I'll be that person, you know, in a walker going to the concert, you know, and uh, <laughs> and I, I love them. Um, same thing with The Cure or Susie Sue. I love the music still. I, I love the style. But it's got me to thinking we have not yet carved out a place for another type of band style cult movie, which is the actual documentary version of a cinematic piece. And I was thinking about Truth or Dare would qualify, right? That's truly a cult movie. Or Stop Making Sense. Stop Making Sense would qualify. Um, of course, I'm going to push hard for Depeche Mode's 101. Talk about niche. It would be interesting for you to see it, Michael, if you haven't seen it yet, because it really is the thing that inspired reality television. The way they made the movie was they had a contest on the radio for fans to audition to go on a tour bus behind Depeche Mode for their Concert for the Masses tour, and they filmed the fans on the tour bus 
not the band. So the movie's actually about the reality TV kind of aspect before reality TV. Very fascinating. Well, I would be very interested in seeing it. And I don't think we've ever discussed this before, but I'm actually a Depeche Mode fan as well. And the last time I saw them, I drove many, many hours to see them in Washington, D.C. because that was the closest concert that they were playing to where I was living at the time. Oh, I wonder if we were at the same concert. That would be weird. Well, you know, stranger things have happened. And with this idea of, of rock documentaries, because of the content of this week's episode, my final recommendation before we go off into the night. If you love the Ramones and you want to know more about them and you're also interested in in, uh, long-form documentary, I recommend The End of the Century, The Story of the Ramones. It's a 2003 documentary that will tell you everything that you need to know. They even very, very healthily cover rock and roll high school. It's one of the coolest documentaries I've ever seen in my life. So, uh, yeah, watch that. And if you watch that and you're inspired to to take out your old vinyl and put it on the record player and bop around and... and, um, thrash your head and and just give the middle finger to the man then you you know that you too are one of the children of the podcore now <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs> <laughs>